Harigashita Maharaj, please accept my humble obeisances. Just, Maharaj, I'm making you co-host, then you will have to unmute. Just, Harigashita uh, Maharaj, now, now you can unmute yourself. Hare Krishna. Uh, Hare Krishna. So uh, today we are very fortunate and honored to have association of uh, His Holiness Hirdayananda Goswami Maharaj. I will just uh, give a little brief introduction about Maharaj. In 1969, after attending a campus lecture delivered by uh, His Divine Grace A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Shri Prabhupada, founder Acharya of ISKCON, Maharaj began studying the philosophical literature of uh, Shri Prabhupada movement. And in September 1969, uh, Maharaj joined ISKCON Barclay Center. In 1970, he was uh, formally initiated into Gaudi Vaishnava tradition by Srila Prabhupada. And he did uh, a lot of wonderful services in the mission of Srila Prabhupada. And around the uh, 1980s, together with the team, he formed uh, and completed Prabhupada's epic translation and commentary on Srimad Bhagavatam Puran. Maharaj is uh, fluent in seven languages, English, Spanish, Portuguese, Italian, French, German, and Sanskrit. Around uh, 2013, Maharaj established uh, Krishna West to help uh, facilitate ISKCON's outreach to the Western audience. Krishna West uh, now has centers throughout North and South America and Europe. Uh, Maharaj is a very senior disciple of Srila Prabhupada and a lot of contribution to Prabhupada's mission. So we are very fortunate to have Maharaj Association. So we welcome Maharaj by chanting one time Hare Krishna Mahamantra. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. Hare Krishna. So should I begin? Yes, Maharaj, you can. First, thank you very much for this very kind invitation. It's an honor to be able to speak to all of you about uh, great soul, Bhakti Charuswami. Um, among many uh, very impressive activities and character traits of Bhakti Charuswami, uh, I should mention first that during my visit to Jane, uh, a few years ago, uh, I was, um, I can say that I, you know, I've been to many Hare Krishna temples because that's what we do. We go to Hare Krishna temples if you're a sannyasi. But um, but I, I don't think I can remember ever being received uh, in a more gracious, uh, kind, generous way than I was in Ujjain. And um, of course, as they say, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. So I give, uh, really I give great credit, not only to all of you for being such sincere souls and, and true Vaishnavas, but also, of course, Bhakti Charaswami, who, uh, who himself was a perfect gentleman. Prabhupada once was asked, how can you tell who's really a devotee? And Prabhupada said, he'll be a perfect gentleman. So certainly by that definition, uh, Bhakti Charaswami was a, uh, an outstanding Vaishnava. And so the way he trained all of you and the fact that he went to Jain and, and created this 
transcendental community uh, with loving devotees who were so hospitable and um, kind and welcoming and who displayed such ideal Vaishnav character, which of course is obviously to the credit of Bhakti Charaswami. And so Prabhupada also once said, Krishna consciousness is not a bluff. And so it's, it's not simply a question of diplomacy or let's say good manners, but of genuine loving Vaishnav feelings, which he embodied so much and which he was able to also bestow upon others. So, um, yes, yeah, so I will always be grateful for the way I was treated in Eugene. Uh, and also how I came to Jain is important. Um, that also, not only because as a sannyasi, I heard there was, you know, free food there. But, um, but actually when I went to Jain, it was really because of Bhakti Charaswami. And uh, so I want to tell that story also. Um, I went to Brazil several years ago. And I hadn't been there for several years. And so we had a big festival. We had about, uh, it, 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 it became sort of an all Latin America or South American festival. We had about uh, 2,000 devotees, which in India is not necessarily a staggering number. But in the Western world, that's a lot of devotees. So we had 2,000 devotees that came for a festival in Brazil. It was very ecstatic. And we were also, of course, promoting uh, Krishna West. And um, so then from Brazil, I flew to Florida and I happened to go to Orlando where I, where Bhakti Charaswami happened to be there. This was unplanned. Neither of us knew that the other would be there. And uh, so of course we arranged to meet as old friends. And um, he was a GBC chairman that year. And uh, when we met, of course, it was always a pleasure to meet Bhakti Charaswami, as, as everyone says, because he was a uh, he was a very transcendental person, always very loving, always very generous. And uh, when you meet with other people, uh, there can be some formality or some. Uh, some level of conditioned consciousness or false ego. And so people can, you know, be very polite and very kind and say the right things, but you can perceive there's still a little bit of uh, conditioning. But in the case of Bhakti Charaswami, it was always, as everyone, everyone knows this, it was such a pleasure to be with him because he was just so, um, completely loving and kind. And I mean, he really had a great love for other souls, which of course means that he had great love for Krishna and for Prabhupada. So we met and we talked and of course, you know, the usual jokes, <laughs> it was impossible for us to meet and not, you know, go through our usual old jokes between each other. I mean, with each other. So I remember going back, uh, how many years? Uh, probably 40 years or so. Some of our jokes go back 40 years. Um, because I was always kind of more Western in my outlook. I mean, in terms of, because, because Prabhupada ordered me in that way. 
I received direct orders from Prabhupada to make Krishna consciousness attractive to educated Western people. And of course, Bhakti Charaswami, which I'll talk about more later, was um, was Prabhupada's most prominent uh, Gaudiya disciple. So, um, so we would joke, and I would call because he was more traditional. I would call him his initials BC, and uh, <laughs> I would say you're very very ancient. So he would call me from Acharya. They would call me AD, and always say, oh, "You're you're too modern." Of course, it was all said in joking, and uh, we would always laugh about this. So, uh, so I met him in Orlando, and um, at that time, <laughs> without going into all the details, uh, the relationship between my project and, and some of the leaders of ISKCON and GBC was not the best. Uh, I won't go into all that. Uh, but... Um, but Bhakti Charuswami, as the GBC chairman that year, he took very seriously that responsibility and he, because he really does have great love for Prabhupada, um, because he, he always was fully dedicated to Prabhupada without any, he had just fully dedicated to Prabhupada. So uh, he took very seriously his personal responsibility as the GBC chairman that he wanted, because he knew that I was, you know, the other leaders are trying to do their best for Prabhupada, but he knew very well, he knew me, that, you know, I'm following actually Prabhupada's instructions to me and trying to do what I, what I know uh, Prabhupada needs me to do. And so he, he took personal responsibility as GBC chairman, he had to fix this. And uh, he took that very seriously, that Krishna has put me in this position this year as GBC chairman, and I have to fix this, or I have to do everything possible to bring the devotees together. And so um, we were talking, and uh, he said a few things, and I gave my standard answers. And then uh, he just spontaneously said, it must have been Krishna. He just spontaneously said to me without any preparation or introduction or preface, he just said to me, you have to be on the GVC. You should be back on the GVC. And um, I said, really? Or something like that. And so he, uh, anyway, he was quite uh, insistent. He was quite convinced. And uh, we talked a little bit and I, and I thought, He's right, actually. Uh, I, again, I won't go into all the history. I'll leave that to uh, political historians. But, but he insisted on this point that this is the solution. This is the way to bring everyone back together. And uh, so I agreed that if, if that's Krishna's desire, and if, if that actually happens. So then, as it turned out, the next GBC meeting was in Ujjain. And uh, so to me, it's obvious that as he did many times, Krishna spoke through Bhakti Charaswami, that when he told me that, I'm sure it was Krishna speaking through him. And uh, of course, he, I, I think there was no better host 
in the history of ISKCON in terms of receiving Vaishnavas. And so he, of course, he made an offer I couldn't refuse, as they say, you know, in terms of telling me, you know, how nicely I would be received and I'll be happy there. And whatever happens at the GVC level, I'll have a great time, you know, being hosted in Eugene. And so um, anyway, he, he told me all these things so sincerely and so lovingly uh, that um, in my heart, I knew that I had to do this, that somehow Krishna has put him as a GVC chairman. We we're old friends and uh, he's invited me and urged me with so much real devotion and, and such a pure desire to do what is best for Prabhupada and his mission. That I realized that I, I, and so I did the impossible. I actually got on a plane and uh, flew all the way there because I, uh, flying on airplanes is not my favorite devotional service. And uh, <laughs> many times in the past, when I go to my apartment and I got very sick. Uh, and so if you go somewhere, I mean, and of course I, I've had my most wonderful spirit, spiritual experiences in my life in places like Vrindavan and Mayapur. So I'm very much aware by personal experience that it's a spiritual world. Uh, but Prabhupada always wanted me to preach in the West. One time in 1972, uh, in those days, there was no annual Mayapur meeting at the GBC. There was no Mayapur, ISKCON. And so Prabhupada, whenever he needed the GBC, he would just call them to wherever Prabhupada was and they would all fly in and they would have a meeting. And so in 1972 in May, uh, I, was, I was about to take sannyas along with several other devotees in Los Angeles. And so Prabhupada called all the GBC and they took advantage of this meeting because they didn't meet regularly to sort of redo the map of ISKCON, all the zones, and Bhagavan went to Europe, and just all kinds of adjustments were made in GBC zones, and the GBC voted. The whole GBC voted, I think unanimously, that because I knew some Sanskrit, and I should go preach in India. And when Prabhupada, so the system was, always when Prabhupada was there, that after every session of the GBC, morning session or afternoon session, the GBC would go to Prabhupada's room, and read all the resolutions and Prabhupada would just say yes, no, or redo it. And so um, when they read that resolution, <laughs> that I, was, I, was, I should go to India, Prabhupada said, what? He's, he's, why will he go to India? His service is not in India. Let him stay and preach in America. And so I, I, I had many experiences like this with Prabhupada. So, uh, and so Krishna kind of emphasized the point by uh, blessing me with the ecstatic experience of, you know, almost dying in India several times, uh, including one time the Prabhupada actually saved my life. I, I got food, food poisoning from a uh, chocolate cake that a very good friend of mine, Amarendra, brought from Florida. And on the way, it wasn't refrigerated. So I was literally lying there on, on the balcony in Mayapur. I mean, there's a whole story of how I collapsed on the bank with Jalungi and I was carried back and I was just sitting there, the food poisoning. And so they asked me, what, what do you, some people, it was like, it was like a Jamila with the Vishnu Dutas and Yamadutas. 
So I woke up and there was there was an argument going on, and some people wanted to take me to the hospital in Krishnanagar, and other devotees said, "No, he'll die there. It's you know it's worse than anything to go to that hospital in Krishnanagar." So, so uh, they they looked down at me and said, "What do you want to do?" And I just all the energy I had, I just said, "Ask Prabhupada," you know, because we were we were right next to Prabhupada's room. So they went and asked Prabhupada, and Prabhupada said, "Oh, he doesn't have to go to the hospital. Just give him some water." with mixed with Tulsi leaves. <laughs> so they gave that to me and literally I drank it like in five minutes. I was walking around chanting Japa. So Prabhupada actually saved me physically. Anyway, so I was not always so enthusiastic. Even though I love Indian, it's it's I know it's there are many places there that are actually the spiritual world. Uh, <laughs> and I, some reluctance, but for Bhakti Charaswami I couldn't refuse him because I knew that Krishna was speaking through him. And so I, I went there and we had a quite a lively session of the GBC and I made my points and the result was that the GBC unanimously accepted Bhakti Charaswami's proposal. So I think that what Bhakti Charaswami did, among many things that he did, it was of great historical importance. And of course many things he did were of great historical but this in my own life, and I think really for, for all of ISKCON, because if you, I think that Bhakti Charaswami did what in a sense no one else could do, including myself and, and the other members of the GVC. And that is by his uh, extraordinary um, Krishna consciousness, love for the Vaishnavas, and of course love of Prabhupada and his complete dedication to Prabhupada's vision of a unified movement. Uh, he somehow or other arranged to bring us all together if you study the history of religions, which I've done quite a bit, um, something like Krishna West, and again, I've never, you know, I've never claimed to know what people in other parts of the world should do to spread Krishna consciousness. But um, at least in the Western world, uh, something like Krishna West if you study history, has made the difference between a new religious movement becoming a world religion or, or not. I mean, just to give one quick little uh, fact, and this is very true. I mean, I'm stating a very simple, almost, it may sound almost uh, funny, but if you study all the technical history, it's actually true. The reason that Christianity became a world religion and, and not just sort of a failing, uh, which it was, a failing little project where the leaders of the movement, their GBC, whom they called apostles, um, they literally were almost starving. They could hardly feed themselves. The movement was doing so badly. And then a uh, figure of Paul did something like Jesus West. Like I said, that may sound amusing, but that's exactly what it was. It was Jesus West. And of course, we won't make all the mistakes he made, but so Bhakti Charaswami, he had this, um, this pure spiritual vision. And so the fact that he brought us all together, that he did what no one else can do, including myself, uh, not only is a tribute to his, uh, his love for Prabhupada and the Vaishnavas, he played a very key, essential, an essential his role in... Uh, in ISKCON history, just by that one act, and not to speak of all the other things he did. So, um, anyway, I'm not uh, sure how long I'm supposed to speak here.
I don't want to. Uh... You can speak Maharaj uh, till 8.30 we have, but even after that we can continue, no problem. Okay. I won't charge you extra considering this. So, uh, so that is, um, in another sense, Jabhati Charaswami, because of his uh, outstanding Vaishnav character, he made Krishna consciousness scientific. This may sound unusual because uh, he's not known to be a scientist, but he was a spiritual scientist. And uh, the essence of science is not that you just foolishly think the ultimate truth is in matter. That's not the essence of science. Uh, the essence of science is that you have a theory and, and, and a, an a proof that you come up, you propose that something is the truth, and then you actually demonstrate that it's true. And uh, Krishna actually talks about this in the Bhagavad Gita, in chapter three and chapter five. He uses the uh, ancient Sanskrit terminology, Sankhya Yoga. Sankhya means, and also chapter two actually, uh, something like philosophy. Something like, because uh, the word in Sanskrit, Kya, Kya in Sanskrit, you all know this I'm sure in India, but Kya in Sanskrit means to explain something or to narrate something. And sang means together like sankirtan. So sankhya literally means to give a sort of a complete explanation of things. And therefore the word, and sankhya also in Sanskrit means number. And uh, so without going into all the links between those two meanings, but it, it means number to sort of give a, an account. I mean, think of the, in English you have to count like Sankhya numbers, but then you have an account, to give an account of something, which means to explain it. And so I think if you look at the English count and to give an account, to account for something, which means to explain it, then that's something like the word Sankhya. And so then from the word uh, Sankhya, you have the derivative word Sankhya, uh, which means to basically enumerate or to explain all the fundamental principles of reality. And the, um, of course, there's a word in Sanskrit which means a fundamental principle, a fundamental category of reality, which is the word tattva. Just very briefly, uh, just uh, tat, of course, is also in English. If you add an H, it's English, that. So tat and then twa means nest or like the state of being. So tatwa means the state of being that. Since that is a demonstrative pronoun, it, it, in Sanskrit philosophical shorthand, it refers to a real thing because you can only demonstrate something which actually exists. So this is a very brilliant culture, this Vedic culture. And so the word tatwa means being a demonstrable thing, a real thing, a fundamental object. And so Therefore, we say Vishnu Tattva, Jiva Tattva, and so on. So anyway, uh, getting back to the point, so Sankhya, therefore, ultimately means to give a full philosophical account of reality, especially giving the Tattvas, the uh, enumerating the fundamental principles of reality. And then yoga, of course, means application, spiritual process, 
sort of acting on this philosophy. So Krishna says, Sankhya Yoga Pratagbala uh, Prabhadanti, that uh, Bala was, you know, Bala means child, like Bala Krishna. So Bala, Krishna here means like childish people, those who are childish, those who are immature. So Krishna says, Sankhya Yoga Pratagbala Prabhadanti Nepanja, that the childish say that philosophy and practice are different. Uh, not the wise, and ekamapiasti tak samyaghubayorvindate falam. And if one really sticks to one of these, the one achieves the fruit of both. And of course, in in Bhagavad Gita chapter two, uh, text thirty nine, where it's a, a summary of all the contents, where Krishna says, "Ishate bhita sankye." I have now uh here I've now explained you buddhi or a rational account of reality. I've now explained it to you in terms of the philosophy, Sankhya, and now hear about it in practice, yoga. So Bhakti Charoswami really demonstrated the spiritual science because he acted um, in a way that corresponds to Krishna's teachings. After all, Prabhupada always, this was one of Prabhupada's big selling points when he would preach is that the people who chant Hare Krishna, those who are following me, they are demonstrating superior character. They're giving up sinful activities. They're actually devoting themselves to God and so on. And as we know, as time went on and ISKCON became a larger religion, not we can't exactly say that everyone that chants Hare Krishna is demonstrating great character. Uh, unfortunately, we can't really say that. And yet Bhakti Charaswami did. So Bhakti Charaswami actually understood Prabhupada's teachings, which are Lord Chaitanya's teachings, which are Krishna's teachings. So Bhakti Charaswami actually understood that, but then his yoga, his spiritual practice of it, his, his application of those teachings uh, demonstrated that this is real spiritual science. And so it's actually the great Vaishnavas, it's actually the Vaishnavas who, by their own character, give a, give transparently show a living example of what Krishna is teaching, of how how one actually benefits by bhakti yoga and how one can revive the pure nature of the soul. So by living a, a pure life, completely devoted to Prabhupada's mission, Bhakti Charaswami actually demonstrated that this is a spiritual science. And one who does that, of course, there's a word for it, Acharya. Uh, of course, that's a very sensitive topic, you know, the word Acharya. But actually, Prabhupada said, who fortunately had a lot more common sense than many of us, Prabhupada said that he wanted all of his disciples, actually men and women, to be Acharyas, because the, the word the word Char in Sanskrit, the Sanskrit root Char, means to act, like a person's actions are called, therefore, Charita like Chaitanya, Charita, Amrita. And so Chara, from that verb, means conduct. Achara, 
conduct in the sense of good good conduct conduct it's just like for example in english a mother may say to her child behave yourself so the child technically could say well everything i'm doing technically is behavior but when you say when a mother tells her child you have to behave it means you have to behave properly and so it's actually just like that in sanskrit that achara just means behavior but it means good behavior and acharya anyway without going into all the grammar here but acharya means a one whose behavior is uh to be followed that it's, it's the behavior that you should perform it's the way you should behave or one who behaves in the proper way the way that people should behave and so Prabhupada wanted us all to be acharyas because not i always say acharya with a small a not a capital a because acharya with a capital a that's Prabhupada and bhakti Siddhant and so on so um so but Prabhupada did say that because if if the leaders of iskon are not acharyas the alternative is hypocrisy and uh so thank god we have people like bhakti charaswami who were acharyas who actually uh, exhibited proper behavior and therefore proved that krishna consciousness is a real science so uh yes i just to wrap up i i very much um relish the the memories i have one time the bhakti charles i'm one of the few times that we actually worked together on a on an actual team apart from gbc meetings which are uh, an interesting ecstatic thing but i remember in 1975 no 76 70 maybe 77 i can't I'm sorry, 86 or 87, not 70s, 86 or 87, uh, the GBC, including myself and Bhakti Charaswami, we had to deal with a real problem that ISKCON had never had before, and I hope we never have again, and that is because we had a, the initial guru system in ISKCON, and uh, it was very interesting, in retrospect, just a word on that. Um, Prabhupada had a concept of what a leader should be, in a sense, based on his own experience. Because if you look at, Krishna says, of course, in the Gita, Chaturvarnya Maya system, that I've created the system of four Varnas. And in, 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 those, in that system, Krishna clearly separates the two highest functions, which are sort of the teachers who, who tell the society from their childhood, who tell that society what is right and wrong, what is proper behavior, what you should do and not do. Prabhrittincha, nibhrittincha, karya, karye, and so on. And so that's obviously very important. Children are very impressionable. And of course, in, in, in traditional societies, up until the sort of whole sort of secularization movement that really, I mean, secular society as we know it is real, really only about 150 years old. 
and for the rest of human history, society was non-secular. And so, um, therefore, the teachers were also the religious people because when you're teaching, you have to teach the highest knowledge, or even if you're teaching lower knowledge, it has to be taught within an, an ethical framework. Like if you're becoming a scientist, you have to know, you know, that you shouldn't use science to commit genocide. So, so science, even science, not to speak of history and philosophy, it has to go on within an ethical framework and ethics are metaphysical and therefore they have to have a metaphysical base, which means theology. And anyway, just not going into all the details. So for 99% of the time that human beings have been alive on earth, you know, knowledge or maybe 95% knowledge has been taught by religious leaders. And so therefore that's the natural system. The modern system, which is failing, the universities are actually, I mean, I'm going to all the socio-historical reality nowadays, but this great experiment of having purely secular philosophy and knowledge is not working. Society's kind of unraveling as we see. So therefore the Brahmins are very important. In, in a traditional sane society, spiritual leaders are very important. They're the natural teachers. And uh, the Kshatriyas who actually govern society. So Prabhupada emphasized these, and that's why if you look at the Bhagavatam with the, out, uh, with the of course, fantastic exception of the residents of Vrindavan, who are the greatest devotees of Krishna, apart from the residents of, of Vrindavan, virtually all of the important people in the Bhagavatam are either Brahmins or Kshatriyas. And so Krishna separates these classes. There is a, a balance of power, you could say. And if you study Mahabharata, there are moments when there was a tension between these two classes, leading to even you know, one class killing the other class. Parashuram is one example, and then the case of Orva is another, where, where Kshatriyas killed Brahman. So this, of course, was exceptional, but there was a tension. But these two powers were separated. Now, what's interesting is, in ISKCON, these powers are not separated. And of course, that, and, and, and the obvious reason is that when Prabhupada came, um, being the charismatic founder of a new religious movement, I'm using the word charismatic. I don't mean charismatic like, uh, you know, the Beatles or something, or Elvis Presley. I mean charismatic in the ancient Greek sense, which is the way sociologists use it. Charismatic, charisma, to have charisma is very much like what we call Shakti Avesh. Shakti Avesh, that someone receives special power from God. And so, um, in, in, you know, if you know the sociology of religion in the first stage of a new religious movement, you have a charismatic leader, a leader like Prabhupada, who is perceived by the followers to have a special power given by God and that God is speaking through this person. And so therefore, all authority comes from this person. And uh, all authority comes from this person. And, um, and that was the case with Prabhupada. Prabhupada had to manage this con. He had to teach us even how to clean ourselves properly. He had to teach us you know, how to manage our temples. And he was also, of course, the great theologian, the great, I mean, he revealed the message of, of, of God. So, 
so Prabhupada had this model. One time I wrote to Prabhupada, I wrote to Prabhupada, Satsrupa also, we were traveling together with Satsrupa Maharaj, we both wrote to Prabhupada saying, okay, we just took sannyas Prabhupada, there's 72, now no more management, because we've both been temple presidents, now we can just preach. And Prabhupada wrote back and said, who told you this nonsense? One time I'm just gonna close this door, there's a little noise outside. Prabhupada wrote back and said, who told you this nonsense? He said, you do what I'm doing. In the morning, I give Bhagavatam class, and in the afternoon, I go to the bank. So what's interesting is that Prabhupada had this image that he wanted his sons, you know, go into the family business. And so when Prabhupada chose 11 people to be Diksha gurus when he left, what's very interesting is that all 11 of them were managers and preachers, of course, and also preachers. But Prabhupada didn't choose one person to be a guru who was just a Brahmin, who was just, let's say, learned in Shastra, a good preacher. Everyone he chose was also managing his own. He actually chose the people who were leading zones. And so, of course, ultimately, as time goes on and as actually social science predicts, it created a lot of problems because you had people who, a lot of the people who had sort of managerial propensity and they didn't make it as gurus for various reasons. But so anyway, um, so Bhakti Charuswami, I think, uh, also was one of the, Oh, so I knew what I was going to say. So the reason we worked together is because uh, so many gurus had fallen down and it became a real crisis. It was like a major crisis because we had hundreds and hundreds of ISKCON devotees without gurus. Hundreds of them. And of course, Bhakti Charaswami, myself and others, we were trying to comfort and encourage these people, but you had just hundreds and hundreds of devotees whose gurus had fallen down. And so the biggest question in ISKCON at that time was, uh, do these people have to get reinitiated or, or not get reinitiated? And so that was the big question in ISKCON. So the GVC decided we have to research and write a paper. So Bhakti Charoswami and I uh, worked together because uh, we were assigned, we were the translation committee. So Bhakti Charoswami translated Bengali, I did the Sanskrit, so we worked together. And uh, that was a very happy time. He was a very easy person to work with. I mean, because when you work with other big leaders, that's that's not always true. But with Bhakti Charaswami, it was uh, it was a real pleasure. I just somehow rather not that it was a nice situation to be in with all these suffering disciples, but it was a real pleasure to work with him. We were Mayapurs at the during the GVC meeting, and we spent hours and hours together going over translations and. Uh, it was very nice because that time I spent with Bhakti Charaswami was very brahminical. We were just translating, and of course, we had to sometimes derive philosophical conclusions and, you know, what does this acharya mean by that? And what does this actually mean? But um, I just remember that, that that's a very, very happy memory for me. Just that time I spent with him in Mayapur for days. We worked for days just going through Shastras. And uh, it was a very happy time. I remember another time in, in, in New Delhi. That was before ISKCON owned a temple. And after this, then, then we'll take your questions. Uh, 
that was, I think, in 1970, 1981, I think it was. 1981. And so the temple president in Delhi, who was a Western devotee, very kindly gave me his apartment to stay in. Iskand didn't own the temple back then. They were renting a house. And, um, and so Bhakti Charoswami came and stayed with me, which I was very happy about. And we just spent days together uh, singing Bengali songs like Paramakaruna, Anita Guna Mani Amar. And uh, of course, he would translate them because he knew Bengali. And that was just a very ecstatic time. It, you know, it had nothing to do with ISKCON management or anything. We were just um, singing Bengali songs together. So those were very, you know, we had, it was a very loving relationship. Those are, there's things that I'll, uh, they're some of my happiest memories in terms of association with, with senior God brothers. So thank you very much again for this opportunity to, uh, speak about and, uh, that must be a descendant of uh, Sivananda Sane's dog anyway so let me see if there are any questions here um, are there any questions yeah, yes madam there are a few questions I will just okay I can read it here so this might be a personal question but with Guru Maharaj's absence are you concerned about the relationship Krishna West will have with the GBC in the future uh, I don't think so. I mean, we're also behaving nicely. And um, so I think everyone's on their best behavior. And also, to be perfectly honest, uh, I think Krishna West, to use the medical term, uh, really within the ISKCON body has become inoperable. In the sense that, uh, I mean, so many, there's just so many devotees uh, thousands of devotees either directly participating or strongly supporting that. Um, and, and also, in, in fact, now we've gone to another level of discussing with the GVC uh, whether we should do something that Prabhupada actually rec uh, recommended. He said that we should study the Catholic Church in terms of how they organize. I mean, not for theology, I hope, but but um, how they've organized because they have orders and that's the way they've, they've really dealt with uh, unity and diversity is that to, to relieve any like stress because like people have different ways of doing things inevitably. Dr. Prabhupada said the whole purpose of ISKCON is to uh, train devotees to think independently, of course, within boundaries. So um, the idea of having a Krishna West order uh, and also, but the real point is that if you study Prabhupada's teachings, you will find many places where Prabhupada says, don't change anything. That's your disease. You want to change things. And you will find many verse, places where Prabhupada says, you have to adjust everything. In, 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 for example, in his purport to the Bhagavatam, verse 4854, where Prabhupada, where uh, Narada Muni uh, instructs Dhruva, Maharaj, that you have to worship the Lord Deshakala Vibhagavit, knowing the differences, Vibhaga, the distinctions of Deshakala, place and time. And uh, when Bhishma Dev in, in the first canto, I think it's 1911 or something, when he's on the bed of arrows, uh, he's praised, Bhishma's praised as being Deshakala Vibhagavit, same thing. 
one who knows the distinctions of, of place and time. And in both purports to those two verses, Prabhupada emphasizes, for example, at 4854, he says that if one is really to uh, serve, he said, he said one must uh, make all adjustments and take all risk, take all risk and make all adjustments so that uh, Western people are comfortable with Krishna consciousness. Prabhupada even says that there are some people, he says, devotees, yeah, this is Prabhupada's words, you know, don't kill the messenger. Prabhupada said that there are certain devotees puffed up with concocted notions, direct quote, puffed up with concocted notions who think that in the West you can do everything the same way as in India. So, um, so Prabhupada says, don't change anything. Prabhupada says, adjust everything. So how do you, how do you reconcile, how do you explain this paradox? Paradox, of course, is an apparent contradiction, which upon further investigation turns out to be not a contradiction. And, and the, the obvious explanation is given by Rupa Goswami and Prabhupada in the sixth chapter of Nectar Devotion, Bhaktir Samrita Sindhu, where Rupa Goswami and Prabhupada say that um, there are two categories of principles that we follow. There are fundamental principles that you cannot change, and there are details which you have to change. You know, whether, as I always say, whether you are a very large prehistoric mammal or a religious movement, you will go extinct if you don't adapt to your environment. And so, uh, so how do you know what are the fundamental principles? Well, first of all, in two ways. Number one, because Rupa Goswami lists them. But number two, uh, if you study Prabhupada's teachings, there are three things that we can't change. There are three things that we can never change. One is our philosophy. Our philosophy. And of course, you have to understand Siddhanta as opposed to details. We can't change our philosophy. Number two is we can't change our sadhana, our basic practice. And number three is we should not betray Prabhupada's mission. Prabhupada wanted us to serve within his institution for obvious historical reasons, because otherwise it won't come to anything if we divide ourselves. So in Krishna West, we very strictly follow Prabhupada's teachings. We are faithful members of ISKCON, and we have the same sadhana. We chant 16 rounds, we follow the four principles. Uh, we eat too much on Sunday, you know, all, all the basics. And uh, so we're following all the basic principles of ISKCON. We are faithful to ISKCON, and we are repeating Prabhupada's philosophy. Uh, let's see quickly. What is Krishna West Maharaj and how is it different from ISKCON? It's not different from ISKCON. It is ISKCON. It just shows, it's, it's just another way of, it, it's, Prabhupada, any movement in order to survive and prosper, it has to do and be faithful to its tradition. It has to accomplish two tasks. It has to preserve everything that is fundamental in the tradition and it must adapt to changing times. It must successfully do both things. And so uh, Prabhupada gave us many instructions on how to do both those things. 
Prabhupada actually explained in detail how to do that, how to preserve what is fundamental and how to adjust what needs to be adjusted. I mean, this is true for a religious movement. It's true for if you, you know, if you're a computer manufacturer, it's true for everything in life. It's true for personal relationships. It's just, it's beta beta. And so, um, so we are very faithfully following that. And, and so unfortunately, well, let me, let me put this positively and be really a nice guy here. There is a danger, there is a danger of, uh, in, in, in one's effort to keep Prabhupada in the center, filtering Prabhupada and just keeping half of Prabhupada in the center. Prabhupada has a very conservative side because he was absolutely unyielding in his insistence on preserving the fundamental aspects of Krishna consciousness. He was, uh, he was adamant. He, he could not have been more clear about preserving what is fundamental. At the same time, he was also very adamant that we have to adjust. And so if, if we only adapt and adjust and don't preserve, we just deviate and and we lose the heart the real Hare Krishna movement if we uh if we only preserve and don't adapt number one we're not following Vaishnav history because all the acharyas adapted i won't go into all the details but i mean that's real history which can be documented very easily including krishna including lord chaitanya and all the acharyas adapted to the times they were in if you just look at the difference between Krishna Leela and Chaitanya Leela, you will see a massive adaptation to a different age in every feature of life externally. So, uh, so I think we are preserving the real Prabhupada, the complete Prabhupada, by strongly following both principles, preservation of the basic principles, adaptation of the details. That combination is actually Vaishnav history, and that's that's really Prabhupada. So, um, so that's another point. Just one second. Uh, so, um, oh, how can we assist in helping Krishna? I visited you at your apartment last year with Guru Maharaj. He made lasagna for you for which I'm eternally grateful, actually. <laughs> it was a great lasagna. Yeah, Bhatti Charaswami was, a, you know, he's a very intelligent, realized Vaishnava. And uh, he understood all these things. How can you help? Uh, oh, station in LA as well. Uh, write to me and uh, yeah, I'd be happy to talk to you about it. Oh, I'm reading Canto 11 and fine purports too philosophical and difficult to understand. Can you please guide how I can read and understand it nicely? Well, uh, if you have a specific question, uh, please write to me. I'd be happy to hear from you. Oh, Bhakti Premaswamy is here in the Zoom room. So uh, I saw him. Actually, Bhakti Premaswamy, I've been watching you. Yes, Maharaj. So I was happy to see you there. And I've actually, yeah, I definitely noticed you. I've been watching you this whole time. So uh, I don't know if you would like to say a few words. 
महाराज दिवे चैतन्य महाप्रभु ग्लोरी इज इंक्रीजिंग एंड एसोसिएट्स ग्लोरी आल्सो इंक्रीजिंग एंड द सेम वे प्रभुपास ग्लोरी विल इंक्रीज एंड प्रभुपास इटर्नल एसोसिएट योर ग्लोरी विल आल्सो इंक्रीज आई एम सो फॉर्चूनेट व्हेन आई केम उज्जैन यू अलाउ मी टू सर्व यू पर्सनली आई एम इनडायरेक्ट टू यू एंड आई विल रिक्वेस्ट यू Guru Maharaj is not here. That is why you should come more and more to give us association. That is my humble request. Thank you very much. That's a very um, and also this type of class. If you don't mind, if you give, I think everybody will be very happy. I that it will be an honor to go yeah. to Jane and uh, I'm just finishing up some books, which I hope will make a difference in ISKCON. help and uh yeah so i i'm very grateful for your kind invitation and i owe you a visit maharaj it is it is your temple why i should invite you <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much hari krishna yes maharaj please accept us as your nephew and please forgive all our offenses I don't think you could commit an offense even if you tried. So <laughs> But Hari Krishna, thank you very much and I uh actually I I should go there in my yeah. heart I yeah. So I think I'll be traveling more once this um Baba Roga once this pandemic is over. Yes, ma'am. Not now. When is it over that? But yes, actually because I'm working on Mahabharata in in a very special way. and uh which i think the voice will be it's something very new for the but um and of course uh bhart varsha i can tell you one time that when i the first time i went to india in this lifetime uh we flew i mean everyone was flying together i mean iskon was kind of small and 90% of the devotees going to the first mayapur festival were on the same airplane <laughs> and so and so i when we um I of course I'm a real geographer and historian so as we were coming into India of course I had my face against the window I was watching everything and and I could just figure out from the geography the topography that at a certain point we were actually in Bartvarsha we'd entered into Bartvarsha and I could feel it and I looked down through the plane window and I could just as I say in my mind's eye I could just almost see the Pandavas down there performing their pastimes with Krishna. And uh so now I'm actually working on Mahabharata. So yes, and you can and I'd be very happy if you and I can go together and visit some of these places from Mahabharata. And also please engage me in your service. Hari Krishna. Hari Krishna. Thank you. Thank you very much. So I'll go to the other question. Let's see. Uh Oh, oh yes, I answer. Let's see. If if I skipped one, please tell me cuz I don't want to trying to Let's see. Srila Bhakti Charaswami is so affable, accommodating and comforting with his majestic yet motherly aura. I can feel Maharaj's dear adhira oh, adhira adhira janapriya kind of hope-giving presence in my heart. 
As preachers, I tend to be result-oriented in planning and in controlling mode. How is it possible to imbibe that personal affectionate touch that Maharaj exemplified so much? And that's from Rahul Ranjan Misha. It's a very interesting Are question. Rahul, what's our internet? Huh? I'm sorry, what was that? Okay, okay, okay. Um, the very interesting question, it's a very thoughtful question. Um, there's a time, I mean, even Bhakti Charaswami, when, 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 when the situation called for strength, he could be, as we know, he could be very strong. And, um, and, and there are different jobs that need to be done. Of course, I mean, we should, we should all aspire to have that loving nature that Bhakti Charaswami so much exemplified. It's something we should all aspire to because it's, it's really Krishna conscious. But um, I think sometimes we, we have to, as Prabhupada said, the secret of Krishna consciousness is whatever nature we have, there is a, there is a devotional service for it. And that's the beauty of Krishna's system. Everyone is included. Everyone can serve. I myself sometimes am not exactly motherly, as some of my people who work with me know that very well. But um, but yes, if we follow someone, I mean, if you follow Bhakti Charaswami and uh, very sincerely try to serve his mission, then his blessings will be there, and and uh, we will develop all good qualities. So, uh, Srila Bhakti Charaswami Maharaj was so, oh, that's the same thing. Oh, I see, it came in twice. So, uh, last question. Can you elaborate more about your work in the Mahabharata? Maybe I'll end with this because uh, I have a, actually another program. Uh, and that is, uh, for example, those of you who are alive right now, those of you who are living today, I mean, all of us, th there's a certain historical context. For example, if you're alive today, you know about Indian independence, you know, let's say about the Cold War, you know about just the whole geopolitical situation, you know about World War II and World War I, you know about how the British came to India, about the Raj, there are things that we just know, they're just part of the and, and, and you can't really understand India today unless you know about the British East India Trading Company and the British Raj and or even the Mughal Empire. I mean, you, how could you understand India, whether it's architecture, customs, or, or why there are so many, uh, you know, Arabic words in, 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 in Urdu and so on. I mean, just to, you know, Indian art and music. So... Uh, so, I mean, simple question, you, you have to know, plus you have to even, so without knowing Indian history, even let's say in the last several centuries, you could, you could never begin to understand the reality of India today. And that's not just India in the last few centuries, all of history is like that. So my vision is that, uh, you have to go back at four generations, and I'll tell you why four generations, in order to really enter into it.
to, 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 to experience the Mahabharata, not watching it, not looking at it, but to actually see it through the eyes of the people who are living it. So you are actually living in the world they lived in, and you are seeing what they saw and reacting to it the way they reacted. And so uh, the Mahabharata is so big, the Mahabharata is so big that uh, even 5,000 years ago, there were like smaller versions of it. This idea of having a, you know, an abridged Mahabharata, that began 5,000 years ago. And so it's very famous that the Mahabharata itself talks about abridged versions. About, you know, there are some, you know, there are very short versions and bigger versions and bigger versions. And so because there's so much material in the, if you're, the question arose, even 5,000 years ago, the question arose, where do you start? Because the Mahabharata begins with the creation of the universe. The Mahabharata basically is an, it, it's, it's a cosmic history, which sort of comes, it, it comes into focus about 5,000 years ago. So where do you start? So the Mahabharata itself says that, that many sages like to start the story. They prefer their narration because there's no evidence of writing in India back there is an oral tradition. So many sages begin their narration of it with the story of Uparichara Vasu, who his name literally means upwardly mobile Vasu, Uparichara. So why? Because Vasu, with Vasu, he's the first person whose activities directly impact in a very strong way everything that comes afterwards. Because Vasu's daughter is, of course, Satyavati. His grandson is Vyastev. His grandson through his eldest son, Brihadrata, is Jarasandha. Uh, you may not have thought of it, but Jarasandha, who's actually the biggest Asura 5,000 years ago, we think of Kangsa just because of Krishna, Leela, Vrindavan, Leela is so popular, but actually, geopolitically, the major Asura was Jarasandha. And Kamsa was actually under Jarasandha's protection and married Jarasandha's two daughters to, form, to, 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 to forge the alliance. So Jarasandha is the first cousin of Yastev. And he's the nephew of Satyavati. And, and so everything is interlinked. And so Thus is very important. So I'm going to explain because it, what I've done is I've studied the map of India, of course. For example, where did Satyavati live, actually? And, and we can pinpoint that uh, to some extent, even though we don't really get the name even of her village, but there's a way, I'm sort of doing historical reconstruction. And uh, because we have two clues. Number one, she lived in Shady because and that's another thing. Why was the imperial capital transferred to Chedi from Hastinapur? Because it was. At the time of Vasu, the Mahabharata says over and over and over again that uh, King Vasu, Parichara Vasu, who uh, was the king of Chedi, Lord Indra personally sent him to Chedi. And the capital, of course, is Shukti Mati, which means Pearl River. And so he was sent to Chedi, and the Mahabharata says repeatedly, he was the emperor. He was Raja, you know, Raja Raja. He was Samrat. He was the emperor. Why was the capital taken away from Hastinapur? 
And why did it go back to Hastinapur with the next generation when Shantanu became king? There are act so you have to study, anyway. So if you look at the map of India, we know that Satyavati, as a girl, was living in uh, the Chedi kingdom because her father was Basu. But and another thing, she was sent away to a fishing village. Why? Not just because she had, you know, really, really serious case of body odor, as you know, as as but but and one thing is I should mention here, Madhvacharya, who's not too far from Ujjain, Madhvacharya wrote a book on Mahabharata in which he said the text has been corrupted over time, thoroughly corrupted. This is Madhvacharya, don't blame me. This is not my fault. So why did, why would a, a great king who's a pure devotee, a Charu, send his own daughter away? And if she's a princess, why would he send her to a low class? I mean, fishing villages were not really higher class back then than they are now in India. You know, fishing village, with all due respect to all of Nancy's, is a fishing village. And so why send your own daughter, your only daughter, to a fishing village? And there are the reasons for all this. Anyway, but so if you look at the map, Satyavati was in Chedi, but she was on the Jamuna River. Now, if you study ancient, the ancient geography of India, there is a, only a very small area where the Jamuna River flows through ancient, ancient Chedi. And so we can actually pinpoint that. Now, there's another fact that, you again, you have to study ancient Indian geography. We also know where Hastinapur was, roughly. It's, you know, roughly around Meerut in India. And so the question is, we know from Mahabharata that Shantanu was wandering around and he somehow, you know, just ran and bumped into this incredibly beautiful young girl and named Satyavati and wanted to marry her. Now, first of all, great emperors like Shantanu don't marry fishing girls. But anyway, the real question here is, what was Shantanu doing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kilometers away from his own kingdom? It's just like in India today, you know, Modiji. He doesn't just say, hey, I think I'll just go on vacation in, I don't know, Thailand or something. You don't do that and just sort of wander around. The leaders of states, great leaders, don't just go walking around other places. And if he ran into Satyavati, it means he wasn't in another royal capital, it wasn't a state visit. He was just wandering through the woods because it's a very remote location. Satyavati lived in a very remote, remote. So what was he doing there? Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away from his own kingdom with no army. And so you have to figure, what was he doing there? And, and why did he marry Satyavati? And what, what, were the what was the political effect? What was the geopolitical consequence of the greatest king in the world at that time, Shantanu, marrying the only daughter of the emperor because her father had been emperor of the world. So what's going on geopolitically? And, and there's all kinds of things involved. So suffice it to say, you have to read, my goal is, you know, if I can get Krishna's mercy to do this, and I think he's given me this mercy, is to really take you back in a serious history 
like a, from a, from the point of view of serious historiography, what's really going on? Why did people do the things they did? Just to give one example, maybe I'll end it with that. That um, we know the famous story of Imani was killed, and uh, then Arjun was outraged, of course, and, and he went after Jayadratha. But now the question is, why would he just do that? And we all know that Jayadratha cashed in his boon from Lord Shiva so that he could keep the Pandavas out of the Vyuha, out of this military formation. But the obvious fact is that uh, Jayadratha was just, uh, he was just a co-conspirator. What about the people that actually killed Abhimanyu? Arjun has, is not at all angry at them, like, hey guys, you know, can't stay to talk right now, I gotta go get Jayadratha. So if you actually read the unabridged Mahabharata, Arjun is not depicted as having the slightest trace of anger toward the people that actually killed his son. So what is really going on? Or how did the Pandavas get to uh, Virat, the kingdom of Virat? How did the how did the Pandavas get to the kingdom of Virat? Because they were they were living in the forest for you know twelve years or whatever it was, for thirteen years, and everyone knew where they were. They were actually receiving heads of state. Other kings were coming, great sages. They were they were literally holding court in the forest. If you read the Mahabharata, everyone on earth knew exactly where the Pandavas were at every moment. So how do you get from where they were to Virat? How do you actually get there? without anyone knowing, because if you read Mahabharata or Bhagavatam, uh, it's very, very spy intensive. They have spies everywhere. I mean, just like now, there's all these intelligence services. They had that back then. They, they had huge networks of espionage, spies. They were all doing that. And so all you had to do, because it said in the Mahabharata that the Pandavas, when they were on their way to Virata, they gave away their horses and chariots and just walked to Virata. So how do you walk from point A to point B and no one sees you? How could they go into, because everyone knew, knew where they were. How do you just walk, you know, it takes a few weeks to get to Virat or a month or so and, and no one knows where you're going? And then how do you get to Virat and the king doesn't know who you are because King Virat of Virat actually knew the Pandavas because King Virat was present at the Rajasuya sacrifice. He knows them. And so what's really going on here? Then you have to plug something else. You have to put some, another fact in here, and that is that Satyavati is very attached to the Pandavas, and the kingdom of Virat is not an ancient kingdom at the time of Mahabharata. It's actually a new kingdom, which was founded recently. It's all stated in the Mahabharata. You have to read very carefully. And who founded the kingdom of Virat a couple of generations before the Pandavas? The, the eldest brother of Satyavati, uh, no, I'm sorry, the twin brother of Satyavati. The Satyavati had a twin brother whose name is Matsya. And that's why Virat was also called Matsya Desh, because he founded it. And as we know from science, 
there is very, you know, very often a very special relationship between twins. Twins, you know, si twin siblings tend to have a very special relationship. And the, and the Pandavas go for shelter to a place that was founded by Satyavati's closest brother. There's another fact you have to plug in. I'm just, I'm just giving you one example of how you have to really be able to act as a serious historian. Here's another fact. King Virat was not actually in charge of his kingdom. Because if you read the Virat Parva, if you read what actually went on when the Pandavas went there, it's clear that the power had been usurped by the king's brother-in-law, Kichika. Because when Kichika is sexually harassing Draupadi, and you know, at the point of raping her, and she threatens Kichika that if you don't leave me alone, I'm going to go to the king. Kichika just laughs. He just laughs and says, the king's afraid of me. I'm the one who rules this kingdom. In fact, so powerful is Kichika, who's an Asura, by the way, so powerful is Kichika and that even when Bhima just sort of pounds him into a medicine ball, you know, when Bhima kills Kichika, and then you have his followers, and they're going to bear, they're going to put Kichika in the fire. And there's this understanding that, that, that if a woman enters the fire, at the funeral pyre of a man, she goes to that man. That's what Madri did with Pandu. So the Kichika's followers say, they're very angry at Draupadi because they see Draupadi is causing the death of their master. So they say, since our master died desiring this Sairandri, you know, sort of like this, she disguised herself as like this hairdresser, Sairandri, that let's throw her into the fire. We're going to throw Th Sairandri into the fire so she can go to Kichik and Kichik can satisfy his desires. So at that point, Draupadi, of course, is absolutely, you know, I mean, Draupadi is just completely panicked. And so she runs the king, and the king is again afraid to intervene. Not only is Virat afraid of Kichika, he's even afraid of Kichika's followers. So what's really going on in Virat? What's really going on, if you just put all the puzzle pieces together, is that number one, the Pandavas go to a kingdom that was founded by an intimate relative. Founded by, because Satyavati is like the queen mother. She's still there. Satyavati is still there. And she's like the queen mother. And she obviously has to protect the Pandavas and her twin brother, with whom she's obviously very intimate, her twin brother founded that kingdom. Not only that, even if her brother's not alive, he all obviously left instructions to be kind to the Pandavas. Not only that, um, you have a situation where Virat, who is a friend of Pandu, you also have to look at the relationship between Virat and Pandu because they're the good guys. They're the Vaishnavas. Virat and Pandu were friends. And Virat has lost his kingdom. And Virat knows the Pandavas. He knows them. First of all, they're his relatives. 
because Virat's father, probably, is the twin brother of Satyavati. Virat was friends with Pandu. Virat came to the Rajasuya sacrifice. It's all intimate family. They all know each other. And even if you look at the scenes where, uh, even if you look at the scenes where, where the Pandavas go one by one from the eldest, and then finally Draupadi to ask employment of the king, it's, it's, it's obvious if you read it carefully that he actually knows them. Because in every case, when they say like, hi, I'm whoever I, you know, Yudhisthira says I'm this or that person. The first thing that Virat says to every one of them is, that, no, you're not. That's not really who you are. And then they say, so he tells them. He knows that they're not who they say they are. And so in my view, Virat protected the Pandavas because they, because they were family. And in return, the Pandavas promised that they would get rid of Kichika and restore Virat to his throne. So again, what I'm trying to do is look at all these fragments. And like Madhvacharya says, we have... We don't have the original version, although basically it's true. And I'm trying to take all the information I could find here and there and reconstruct what actually happened. So anyway, uh, more to come. So uh, we are missing our Guru Maharaj. Last question. Um, similarly, how do you cope missing Srila Prabhupada? How do you feel you were not missing him even after five decades from Raman Reiti? Uh, the day that I learned that Prabhupada had left this world, I was in Sao Paulo, Brazil. It was a rainy day. It was kind of a gloomy day anyway. And I went back to the temple after learning that. And I, I, I of course, called all the devotees, explained. And then I just basically went to the airport and took the next flight to India for all the ceremonies. And, and I remember on the way to the airport, I remember very clearly, it was sort of a gloomy, drizzly day. No, it was a normal day in Sao Paulo. And um, I... Uh, I, I was remembering the verse in the Bhagavatam where the earth is lamenting because Krishna has gone. She's lamenting. She's lamenting for the earth and, and Dharma laments for the earth. And so I was lamenting what the earth has lost. In my relationship with Prabhupada, uh, he emphasized to me, as he emphasized about Bhakti Swami, that ultimately we serve in separate, that, that, the guru's presence. So how did I feel? The first thing I felt was, well, Prabhupada didn't really leave. I mean, superficially he left. Prabhupada once, once wrote a letter that I read personally where he said, you are not seeing the actual form of the guru. The guru is not an external form. And, uh, and Prabhupada gave the example that the, when there's wind and that, that um, the, the wind blows the clouds across the moon, and it looks like the moon is sailing in the clouds. And so Prabhupada said in the same way, you are not seeing the real movements of the guru. So, so what I felt was that Prabhupada's still there. Yet, I mean, nothing, nothing serious has changed. The external form is not there, but the Prabhupada is there and my life hasn't changed. I'm going to do the exact same thing. I'm going to serve Prabhupada because he is present, he is the most important thing in my life. I mean, it's the most powerful presence in my life. It's not just the, the physical world, which is illusory anyway. And if you know quantum physics, like God only knows what's really out there anyway. And I thought that um, the reality is, is Prabhupada and Krishna, and, and they're still here, just like they always were. 
So it doesn't mean we don't lament, it doesn't mean we don't feel separation, but in this, you know, Vani Vapu, I think that the followers of Bhakti Charaswami should understand clearly that, uh, that he didn't leave. And that's what Bhakti Hotakura says. He reasoned ill, he reasons ill who says that Vaishnavas die. And so if someone thinks Bhakti Charaswami is actually gone, according to Bhakti Vinotakur, you got it wrong. You just don't understand. And so I, I think the, uh, the, really, the real devotion, of course, real devotion should be with knowledge. Prabhupada said religion and philosophy, not sentimentalism or, or fanaticism. So I think real bhakti toward, toward the guru, Bhakti Charaswami, who definitely uh, is a great guru. Um, the real devotion is to understand how he's present there spiritually because he's an eternal soul he's an eternal devotee of krishna and just as krishna is always present he's present and um of course we miss the the external uh form of course we do but at the same time i think the more you act as you would when he was here the more you serve with the same enthusiasm the same devotion or even more devotion that devoted service will reveal to you his presence. And so the way to be reunited with Bhakti Charaswami, or just to, I would say, not reunited, but to strongly maintain your connection is to, is by devoted service, it will be revealed to you more and more how you are not separated. And so the real remedy for separation is spiritual advancement. So, uh, with your permission, I think I will take your leave. Thank you very much. It's really an honor for me, and um, you're just such good devotees. Bhakti Prem Swami, I owe you a, <laughs> a visit. <laughs> I recognize my debt. So, and uh, I'll be very happy to, actually for me, that would be a, um, that would be a great happiness to, to go with you to see the places of Mahavarata. I'll, I'll, I'm thinking I am so fortunate. At least you have, <laughs> you are remembering in such a way. So I'll, I'll try to get your association. Hare Krishna. So thank you all very much. And uh, I hope I'll see you again soon. Thank you. Again, I'm very grateful you gave me this chance to, uh, to remember uh, one of the greatest Vaishnavas of ISKCON. So, Hare Krishna. Uh, Hare Krishna, thank you very much for your uh, wonderful association. Uh, from the bottom of our heart, we express our heartfelt gratitude to your holiness for enlightening us and um, telling so many things, especially narrated the pastimes uh, of Srila Prabhupada and uh, various qualities of His Holiness Bhakti Swami Guru Maharaj. First, you quoted about this how Krishna, Srila Prabhupada told that Krishna consciousness is not a bluff. And you told the point to you gave the example the apple does not fall from the sky, and how the uh, how the devo the devotees are the followers of His Swami Guru Maharaj uh, are the example. They are following Guru Maharaj perfectly. You told about Guru Maharaj that how he was a uh, outstanding. Uh, he was having outstanding Vaishnava character. 
his scientific preaching and his, he demonstrated the spiritual science by his own example and uh, uh, he did not he, he did what no one can do in iskon he brought all us to all of uh, all of the devotees together he told so uh, detail about krishna west and uh, told so much from the uh, mahabharat you are writing and uh, we wait for that book and at last you told about how the guru form is not uh, external uh, the real remedy for follow the one year for serve his instruction so we back for you your... promise that he will come to jain yes <laughs> what's that you have oh, promised yes. that he will come to jain i did say that yes <laughs> <laughs> so, so we back uh, your holiness blessings to empower us and uh, guide us so that we can follow these teachings and become lord servant of shila propa then continue to serve in the mission of iskon Thank for accepting the proposal to visit Iskon. Looking forward to see you at Iskon. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Thank you all very much. Yes, Hare Krishna. Hare Anand. Hare Anand. Das Goswami Maharaj ki jai Jagadguru Shri Prabhupada ki jai Gaurav Nandi. Hare.